I mean, ideally you can enjoy your work so you don't feel so crappy, but (laughs) in this kind of society, we tie people's identity to where they work. And I think that's not a great thing to tie someone's identity to because you as a person is not your job. Like as much as I love my job, I'm not my job. The ability to find out who you are as a person and how you can utilize different strengths is really necessary for our own humanity. Welcome to YWLC Chats, brought to you by the Young Women's Leadership Connection, the leading platform for young women leaders in Singapore. We are your co-hosts, Haylin and Nisha, and our show is about female change makers and their personal journeys of challenges, successes, and everything in between. Now, side hustles or passion projects can serve as a creative outlet for many of us who are looking to hone our skills in areas outside of our day jobs, or even to generate an additional income stream. A survey by American recruiting platform Jobbyte found that approximately one in four people across all age brackets now have a second source of income. Indeed, in this era of the side hustle, what does it take to start a passion project and scale it to a lucrative side hustle? Is it even possible to juggle a side hustle alongside a full-time career? Well, our guest for today's episode has ventured into many different passion projects and turned them into successful seven-figure businesses. Indeed, her resume reads like a Harvard Business School case study. Lily Wu is currently a startup partner lead for Southeast Asia with Stripe, working with startups across Southeast Asia to build up the startup ecosystem and bring more digital infrastructure to the region. She first discovered entrepreneurship when she was only 16 years old, and by the time she had graduated from high school, made half a million dollars selling shoes. In university, she founded her second business, Aston International, an education startup that had generated over seven figures in revenue. She then joined New Campus, a VC-backed edutech startup, building the world's first accessible MBA, first as the Singaporean country manager and then as the head of learning. Lily is also the founder of Wow Pixies or World of Women Pixies NFT, which has 5,555 randomly generated pixies. Its vision is to lift up and help women-led projects to the forefront. Lily, welcome to YWLC Chats. You've had such a diverse portfolio of work and professional experiences to date. What has motivated you at each step of the way to take on these different roles, to venture into entrepreneurship, to seek out opportunities across various different sectors and industries? We'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I kind of grew up in a very artistic family. So both my parents are artists. I always thought I was going to become like a graphic designer or animator out of high school. I actually had no interest in business. Like I had no idea what entrepreneurship even was. But during the financial crisis, when I was in high school, that was the first time I came across entrepreneurship. But that was because of a need. 
And that was because my parents had earned this art gallery. And during that time, they had to shut it down. And so they went back to China for three months. And they actually left me with $100, which looking back, I actually thought that $100 was, that was it. Two weeks later, I'm crap, I'm running out of money. Let me use my red pocket money. Let me go and try and find a part-time job, you know, at McDonald's, at KFC. So that that's just all I was thinking, like getting a part-time job. The thing was, I couldn't get a job. I don't know why everyone just kept like rejecting me. During that time, I was super into hip-hop. So I really wanted these Adidas Jeremy Scott collaboration shoes, which had wings on them. And this girl I had met, her parents owned an Adidas outlet in the U.S., so I basically asked her, hey, how much are these shoes? Especially in Australia, they retail for $300. So obviously, I can't afford that. But I asked her, how much is it wholesale? Because if you've ever been to the US, it's like a ridiculous discount. And also because it was the financial crisis in the US, the US dollar was actually a lot lower than the Australian dollar. And also because Australia is always a season behind, we always get like the leftover stuff. So all of those things together, I was like, how much would it actually take for an out of season, like out of like this collaboration shoes that's heavily discounted on wholesale price? Do you want to guess how much it was? <laughs> Maybe like a hundred? Less. Less than a hundred. Oh my gosh, we were all like ripped off. So it was 50 US, which is around like 40 Australian dollars at the time. But if you know, like retail markup is always like 70% of the, the cost. So I was like, wow, that's amazing. But I was like, how much is it to ship the pair to Australia? Mm-hmm. And she was all, oh, it would cost the same amount to ship one pair. So but if you can get an order of bulk order of 20, then we can do like a flat rate. And so I was like, oh, okay, great. I wasn't thinking about starting a business. I was just wanting this one pair of shoes um, with no money. But you can dream, right? So I asked all of my friends if they wanted to get it with me. And this one guy, he went to a private school. I'm sure his parents are very enterprising as well. He was actually, you want to get 20 orders? I can get you 20 orders. Like I can ask my friends, but what do I get out of it? And so I was like, oh, wow, this person is like thinking about what he can gain as well. So I said to him, what, if you can get me an order of 20 by the end of this week, you can charge whatever you want as long as it's more than $80. So I will take a $40 cut. And just in case I don't get to 20, at least it covers the shipping. But if you want to charge 250, you can take a $170 cut if you want to, right? So instantly his like eyes just lit up. He was like, hell yes. Like I'm just going to go and tell all my friends. So my MVP for this business was basically like one Google Doc, not even Google Doc, it was just Word, Microsoft Word. One Excel sheet and then one Facebook page, which is all free, right? And then I would have like the different colors of the shoes, like the um, Excel sheet would be like the size, the the address, and I would send that to him. And because I didn't have money to pay for the shoes, like prepay for the shoes, I said, if he, they were going to order the shoes, they have to give me a $40 bond. So I will use that money to pay for the shoes. And when the shoes came, they would give me the rest of the money. It was all in cash. And so I went to nine other friends, so 10 people in total, all guys, all from private schools. I feel like that was my market. Because <laughs> they're really shameless. Like as high school kids, they just had yeah, like, you want to get this? I went to an all-girls school and no one, 
they think that you like scamming them if you charge anything more than the cost price, yeah. right? It was like a very different mentality. So I went to 10, basically 10 guys all said the same thing. Get me an order of 20 and you can charge whatever you want. So they would actually charge like 250, which is still cheaper than retail, right? But they will, every single pair of shoes, they would take a $170 cut or, or, or more. So at the end of that week and a half, I had 200 orders, right? And each order I had made $40 profit. And so in that one week, one and a half weeks, I'd made $8,000. Yeah. And so I was, oh, wow, this is business. <laughs> but it was just one wow. page. And so what was really interesting was that, you know, five of the 20 people from each of the groups, they would like come to me and say, hey, I know my friend sold me these shoes, but I have 20 people who would want to, like, I want to make money as well. So it was literally, I don't know if I should say this on a podcast, but it was literally like the power of network, like people recommending other people and they would make a cut. And so it was just playing along with people's incentives. Like if a lot of people have asked me, why didn't I take a bigger cut? Or why did I give this cut to this person? But if you're starting out, I feel I have a lot more to gain if I give that person a much bigger cut and I take a smaller one, but in return, I get the breadth of like the wider the network. So we all kind of win. Mm-hmm. So by the time I had finished high school, I expanded to other shoe types and other you know brands as well, got connections. And I had profited around half a million dollars by the time I was 18. And so wow. that was just, I had no intention of, doing a business I had no business mind at all but I felt wow this is really interesting and so I I decided like I was going to study accounting because I was like, oh accounting is the basis of business my also at that time my parents were telling me and they told my brother when he was 18 that they would cut off all my expenses when I was 18 and I had to move out during that time, I was also looking at what I could do during university. And I had landed this cadetship, which is basically you get employed out of high school to this big, like big four or like big five accounting firm or investment bank or engineering firm. Basically, you sign a contract with them for four years. And then during that time, you do full-time work or part-time study over these four years. And so... I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was like, oh, maybe I like business and not so much design anymore, right? Because I've seen my parents struggle with creative arts. So I was maybe I'll just do something that is more actually like feasible for my future. And then I'll do like art and stuff for fun. So I went into this accounting firm, which is one of the largest accounting firms in the world. And it, it just didn't suit me at all. And I honestly really hated it, not because of the company, but just like the type of, it was super corporate. It was just very like micromanaging. And I think it depends on the type of person you are. I'm just someone who hates being micromanaged. And I hate when someone has to tell me, you have to sign in by 8.59 to get in by nine. I think when I realized like the things that I didn't like as well, it really established 
kind of both the things I liked, both the things I didn't, it really established the inkling of what I value. And so one of the values I have now is freedom. And so I hate it when anyone, and freedom means like autonomy, but also freedom to work remotely, to have a creative kind of like control over my work. So that was one of the things I realized during having that creativity and that freedom taken away was that I absolutely hate it. And that is not the environment for me. So I quit after a year. And my my friends were, you are so crazy. You must be kidding me. You're just, you don't know how lucky you are to get one of these positions because it's so competitive in your penultimate or final year at university. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I am really lucky. Like, I'm lucky to know what I never wanted to do again. So I quit after that one year. And during that time, I was just looking at what other options out there. And it's what I realized, like most university students don't even know what they want to do. Because how, how do you know, right? Like you haven't had any time to experiment. You haven't tried anything when you were 18. Like, how can you possibly know what you want to do for the rest of your career? You just don't. And so we all just pick the kind of Asian four subjects, right? Like the commerce, the the law, the doctor, the engineering. And that's about like the scope of our imagination of what to actually do in university, right? And so if you don't have exposure, like how are you supposed to know? So I was just lucky that I knew no accounting for me. And so I actually applied for, I don't know if you have heard of ISEC. Mm-hmm. Like a global, it's like a global chapters of all the universities yeah. in the world and yeah. they match you up with like either internship or volunteering experiences mm-hmm. so I was you know what I'm gonna find myself an internship in China because our prime minister had just come up with this white paper that was saying Australia in the Asian century I'm great I'm Chinese let's go to China so I applied for ISAC also a shock, got rejected. I don't know how someone gets rejected from a free volunteering organization. But I was like, okay, I, I got rejected. Screw you. I'm going to go find my own internship in China. I'm going to make my own. And so then I was like, wow, I don't want to go by myself. <laughs> like, <laughs> I haven't been back to China in like 15 years. And also, I don't even know where to start because it's not like my parents have any connections. They're artists. So that's great. I go, I basically go to my friends and I say, Hey, <laughs> I'm going to be organizing this internship. Do you guys want to pay me $2,000? And I will find you internships. We can do like Chinese learning, cultural stuff. We can visit all these amazing places. We can practice Chinese. I'll, I'll organize it for everyone. And I asked my, primary school friends, my high school friends, my uni friends, and 20 of them said, yeah, let's do it. I don't know why either. And the thing was, I didn't even know where to start because some of them were studying like aeronautics engineering, (laughs) some were studying law. I was like, what did I get myself into? And at this point, I wasn't also wasn't intending to start a business. I was just wanting to have my friends, suck my friends into coming to China with me so I didn't have to do it alone. 
And they paid me $2,000. And I was like, crap, I have to figure out how I'm going to find these random internships. I don't even know what city to begin with. What companies are there? So my question has always been like, how can I do the least amount of work for the most amount of impact? And that's like a question I always ask myself, no matter what I'm doing. And so I was like, okay, what, what is publicly available? right? Publicly available is university emails. And I looked specifically for the Dean of International Education because their KPI is specifically to find more international students. And also because the universities hold all the relationships with companies in that city. So then I don't have to look for the like the companies myself. I can just use a university to do that for me. And so I emailed, I just basically scraped like 400 different university emails from the dean of international education like their emails and i wrote in my shitty chinese and was hey i have 20 students who would love to come to your university we've heard so many awesome things about it here's a list of all of the, what they're studying can you organize internships for them and i'll pay you wow. <laughs> oh my gosh you just how do you scrape how do you scrape like you just I just basically asked one of my friends to like go online and look for like specifically Dean of International Education and they would just like download it. There's like screen. Uh, Okay, okay. Wow. I don't know either. I'm not a tech person. So (laughs) (laughs) I'll just get a VA in the future. That's why I've learned now, 10 years later. But that's what I did. I just got a friend. They helped me put together this whole like Excel sheet of all the emails. I email them. Obviously, a lot of them bounce. A lot of them don't accept Gmail because Google's blocked. And a lot of them probably were disgusted by my crappy Chinese. But like, (laughs) either way, doesn't matter. 400, only four replied. It's a really bad hit rate. But at least one, one of them worked out. Thank God for that one. And it was a university called Liaoning University in a city Shenyang. And I was like, hmm, I've never heard of this city before. Let me look it up on Google Map. And I look at Google Map and it is like the border of North Korea. And I'm like, okay, great. Hey guys, wanna go to like Shenyang? And they're like, Shanghai? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and we yeah, this place. And I'm like, Shenyang is the capital of Northeast China. It used to be the capital city before Beijing. It has an imperial palace. So it has it's a city of great historical, cultural importance. And you don't want to go to a first tier city, but you want to go to a second or third tier city because all of you can practice your crappy Chinese. You don't want to be speaking English in the city. So you can understand real business Chinese. And it's an up and coming city and I kind of pitched that Downing University had top 10 business school who knows but i think it was but it was definitely not top 10 school it was just the business school (laughs) and not half of them don't even study business but it's okay it's just about a pitch um so i was it's really close to harbin which is like a border of russia and you can see like the ice lights there we can visit we can go skiing it's gonna be so much fun anyway they all said yes so that was good so we go to Shenya. It was all our first time there. And it was great. We just formed a partner. I formed a partnership with 
the dean at Liaoning University to bring more students back to China. And so she asked me like what my business name was. I was oh, contract. Let me think of one right now. <laughs> was an Australian intern like squashed together called Austin. That's how. It, oh, the <laughs> but later I I googled this name on on Google and I saw that it was trending in Germany and I was like, wow. This is like years later and we had a lot of international students. I was like, wow, like it's like trending in Germany. Like this is amazing. And then I look at Google Images and I just saw a bunch of oysters. And I realized Austin is an oyster in German. <laughs> and so my pitch later on became Austin means oyster. So the world is your oyster. Like the more opportunities uh, make, the more likely you'll be able to find your pearl. Anyway, so I think um, kind of just like fast forward like five years. So I started this when I was 19. And looking back, I always had an inkling like what the outcome I wanted the business to be. So it was like mainly solving three things, right? The first one was that I knew that myself and everyone around me had no idea what they wanted to do. So I wanted this program to be experience a lot of different things so that they could find out what they actually wanted and to also experience something outside of Australia, which is a massive kind of little bubble. The second thing was that a lot of my friends, right, were complaining, how do I get experience with no experience to begin with? They're like, you're just lucky you just got this thing out of high school, right? It was much easier to get than in uni. So how do I showcase myself when I don't have any experience and they don't want me, but I, it's that chicken and egg problem. And then the third thing was that I saw this article on LinkedIn that was said, JP Morgan designs a software that replaces 360,000 hours of what lawyers do in seconds. And I was like, that's great. That's like my second major. I'm going to be automated both with accounting and commercial law. Like, (laughs) it's how am I supposed to actually like adapt to trends as it's happening and it's evolving? So what are those kind of transferable skills that every person needs, no matter what industry they go into or no matter what company they go into and we kind of looked at like 10 most important transferable skills and these are what you call soft skills but honestly they're very important and much more I think much more important often than even like hard skills so like communication teamwork leadership etc and so if you look at the beginning at my in the beginning the programs in China like the first program I got 40 students to join I also don't know how they all went to Shenyang. I didn't know a single person. Wow. And it was a disaster, by the way. But it was not like a program iteration. It was like a day-to-day iteration. Like literally we would spend 6 p.m. to like 8 p.m. interviewing every single student and be like, what do you, what do you learn? Like, and then by the next day, the whole schedule would have changed. So I realized like a lot of like operations issues, like the city is literally too big. So initially like I would have a schedule where it was like half a day internship and half a day Chinese studying and they just couldn't get back in time to study uh-huh. or to, to do the class because this company and they they got allocated to was like two hours away so I mean I learned a lot of really like random stuff but it was just like day-to-day iteration and then it en- ended up being like program to program iteration and the biggest issue I found was that 
in China, especially, these problems are like kind of compounded 10 times because you don't even speak the same language where you can't, there's a, it's really hard to control the experience when people are paying to come for the internship, but you can't control what the internship is. And so what I found really like, this was a huge pain point for me was that internships often don't provide a lot of value unless the company actually cares about you. Right. Mm -hmm. So then they would just literally a lot of companies would give you paper, like paper runs or photocopying or coffee runs. But in China, I was literally, do you want to give them photocopying? <laughs> because they would literally sit them on a table and they would do nothing. And I was, oh my God, what are they doing here? Because they didn't know what to do with these students, right? And so that's how we kind of like facing those issues had to be, okay, let me make a challenge for you. And then you have to do research and then pitch it back to the kind of company people, right? So eventually, the first thing I did was to go out of China. I found my co-founder. We expanded to Singapore, Hong Kong, Sydney, Melbourne, Shanghai, New York, San Francisco, wow. where in the three weeks, the program ended up being three weeks, we would partner with one corporate and one startup. So people can experience is what do they like? A more corporate experience, do they like a more startup experience? And then the company would give them a problem they're facing, right? And in that one week, we would teach them design sprint. So it didn't matter what company you went to, the experience was the same, like controlled. And they would form groups and they would have to go and pitch it back to the executives. So create a prototype, test it in the market and, and pitch it. And then at the end of the week, the companies could also see this as a hiring process. And so they would often hire the quitting team just to like roll out the solution and also as just like graduate hires. So we worked with Carousel when they were still at Block 71 with the directly with the founders. And the problem that they gave the students was an expansion one, like a, a go-to-market strategy into a different region. So they picked Australia. And so the winning team actually just got hired by Carousel to roll out, expand into Australia. That's how they expanded into Australia, was through a bunch of interns. Wow. Wow. Um, <laughs> the cat is out of the bag right now. Hire <laughs> interns. Hire interns. Yeah. So I the whole five years was such a like varied experience. People often think that when you start a business, it has to be perfect from the beginning. I just didn't even have an idea of what that image looked like in the beginning. Like it just kind of that vision kind of consolidated over time rather than in the in the beginning. I just wanted to experience different things in the beginning. Right. And so I ended up me and my co-founder, we ended up exiting after five years. We had this business was generating over seven figures in revenue. We had bootstrapped it, like taken no investor money. And it was like, it was doing well, but I also felt like my growth was stagnant because each program was run through half yearly kind of like program kind of cycles. And so I just felt like I was doing the same thing over and over again every half a year. And it got into a point where I felt like I really needed to learn from other people to grow myself. And so we decided to exit, just like sell bits of the IP to other education providers. And 
it was during that time that I got in contact with Will and Faye, who are the founders of New Campus. They're also an edutech startup, and I've known them previously. And so at that time, I just really, I was just so burnt out from like the responsibility of owning my own thing because it was a physical program. Literally, you have 20-year-olds going to six different cities, like hundreds of them, going to different cities around the world. And it sounds nice and all, but then like during the day, they're all fine. Then at night, they go out and they drink and they go like party. And literally you have like drunk kids like jumping off a statue. I'm just, oh my God, I'm just so scared something's going to happen to them. Like they had to sign death waivers like before they went on a program. Like that's how serious I was. Holy crap. If something happens overseas, like their parents are going to kill me. Well, this this whole thing's over, right? So that was very stressful. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to go and chill and work for somebody. So I decided to work for New Campus, which was called QLC, which stood for Quarter Life Crisis at the time. And my plan was to, <laughs> my plan was to go and travel and learn languages over this one year period whilst I was working remotely. And then one month in, they were like, hey, we're going to rebrand to New Campus. Do you want to move to Singapore? And I had two choices. I was either going to quit because I wanted to continue learning languages. Or I was going to, I was like, okay, let me just move to Singapore for six months. And then I'll, right. So, but first, let me finish my one month in Korea and learning Korean first. <laughs> mm. Learned Korean for a month. Went to Singapore. And the first day I got to Singapore, I met my current boyfriend. So, met him and then... I just like worked for six months, like helped build up the brand, operationalized like the whole new business model in Singapore. It was, and then after six months, I transitioned to a product role, like more of a, I mean, there's no, it wasn't product role. It was like head of programs because I was building out like the learning curriculum and also finding instructors. So I just moved to the other side of the business whilst I was traveling around Europe and South America for eight months. And so I came, I came back to Singapore in the beginning of 2020, just in time for lockdown. And I continued working for New Campus for another year. So in total, it was like two and a half years. When I left, we had just helped it raise um, Series A. So it was in a good place. And so I, at that point, was looking for different roles. And so I had actually gotten a role from apple and i was already like signed the contract and the apple role was a head of programs role which was to design like creative educational programs um using apple products for different demographics and so that was kind of tying into the education but also my creative background as well that didn't work out because my visa didn't get approved. So I was actually fine employed for about four months before I found the Stripe role. It was a blessing in disguise because I not only got four months break, but I also joined Stripe, which is, I'm so much happier. I, I think I would have been, I know that the culture of Stripe is like everything that I was looking for. And I felt like Apple was going to be a bit corporate. So that was a, the part I was a bit scared of because I didn't know if like they would be able to work as fast as I was used to. 
and be as collaborative like as I wanted it to be. So I think I made a better, well, I didn't make the decision. It happened on me, but (laughs) it all ended up being perfectly great. And it was during that time that I was reflecting as well, going back to your question, why did I make those Mm -hmm. transits each time? I was kind of thinking, how can I use certain words to express what I actually value? So they kind of use a set of words that kind of act as a compass on the direction that I want to go towards, no matter what I want to do next. And whether it's starting a company or whether it's working for somebody, every single decision I've made have kind of like gone on this kind of trajectory. And the five words that I I did a values test, which my my boyfriend used to have a um, career coach and they had this values test, but it's basically 50 words. You rank them high, medium, low. And out of the high, you rank your top 10 and then you rank your top five. And so these five words was, number one was curiosity. So I always want to feel like I'm learning in whatever I'm doing. And it's why I stopped I was turning, even though I was making a lot of money and I could have just, I didn't value that, right? Like the, I I value curiosity. The second was freedom, which if you can't tell, I really value. And so now actually the pandemic was kind of a, the silver lining was kind of that most companies now are looking at totally being remote. And so now I have the op- more options of remote companies, but also freedom being the scope of work, the autonomy that I have, the type of manager that I have, whether he's going to be like micromanaging or not, what his leadership style is. So that was freedom. The third one is adventure. And so my role at Stripe is very much a regional role. I ha- can explore like the reason why I moved to Singapore after I finished my travels was to experience what was work and culture like in the rest of Southeast Asia. So it was really sad. Like the first two years was in lockdown, but this role um, is basically managing across like Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, like all of these places. So I would have that opportunity to actually go there, experience the startup culture and, and learn more. And then the fourth one is relationships which is building these relationships. And something I realized about myself is that even though I was a founder and I went through a whole period of what do I actually want to do? How do I specialize? Do I want to do, because I can do all of it. But I realized I hate anything that's like operations related. And I'm definitely like an external facing person. So you know what? You just got to acknowledge that to yourself and be, I would like to be very, much structured, process-driven, but I'm not. So let's just put that out there. I'm going to be, I value relationship building. And so this role is all about relationship building, right? And that that's what makes me really happy. And the fifth one is my creativity. And that stems from my creative background, growing up being creative, but also how do you, creativity is about how do you utilize ideas from completely different industries or completely different disciplines, how do you apply that to a completely different area? And that's basically sums up what creativity is and being able to kind of join those dots together. So 
that's kind of like what I've always looked for when I'm looking for the next step, even though they seem kind of random. And I haven't thought too much about my career in terms of like a straight line trajectory. But with these kind of five values, I feel like I can't really go wrong because I know that I'm still picking something at the end of the day that matches my values and it's still a step closer to the person that I want to be in the long term. So I think a lot of people think about their career in terms of how much money am I going to make? But I think with my entrepreneurial experiences, that's not so important because I know if I want to make money, I can make money. So the the point is that I have to be really enjoying what I do and that utilizes the most of my strengths. So anyway, that was a very long answer. (laughs) It's such a remarkable story, really, really, really remarkable. And I think it also kind of like blew my mind a little bit as well, because as an Asian kid growing up, there's always a set trajectory as to how you would progress in your career, how uh, what is always the next step. We always have to have a plan. But for yourself, I think it, it's really your your North Star and your compass for yourself is like these five values that you've shared, freedom, adventure, curiosity, relationships, and creativity. And they can come in many forms, not just in terms of being an entrepreneur or, or working for someone else. You don't have to set yourself into these structured boxes of what you need to be, but rather what you yourself are and then searching for your own journey so that was so inspiring and I would also like to hear a little bit um, about your current passion projects on like wild pixies how did you you know come to being a founder of an NFT yeah so like the four months when I was unemployed (laughs) I went back into doing a lot of art so the type of style that I do is these fine liner drawings of architectural drawings. And actually, I started so many projects during these four months, I, which most of them I have not launched yet, but I'm planning to this year. That's why my theme of this year previously was less is more. And then I started this project, so that kind of defeated the purpose. But I was okay, let me change the word. This word's going to be breakthrough because I need to seriously like finish the stuff that I start. One of the other things I was looking into was NFTs because everyone was just telling me about it during when I was unemployed. They were like, you should just do NFTs. But no one else knew what it was. They were just saying what was happening. And then they were like, you should look into it. And no one else actually knew what they couldn't tell me what it was. But I just kind of like really went deep into NFTs. And I first started off just like buying and selling. And so... I bought into like these cool like artist projects called Cool Cats and Robotos. And then I, I found this project called World of Women, which I really loved. And I just love that idea. And because I had started a, like I was ambassador for a global organization for future females, which was like basically helping women find like the right resources to start their businesses or like to get connected to help scale their business. I'm very much a feminist and I very much like can see the biases, especially in the startup space where VCs 
like literally i think the hbs report was like 2.3 percent of vc funding goes to women like in 2020 which is even worse than 2019 and i literally was just reading this twitter thread earlier this week where for example this couple started this project the girl is the ceo the guy is the cto and she was featured in a women in metaverse article by forbes and so the guy was not even mentioned it was just a girl and so the guy actually got an email later and was hey i saw that you are looking for vc funding like by these vcs we can invest like one to eight million dollars whatever and he was okay great let's have a chat how did you hear about us and they linked that women in metaverse article that that's how they heard about it And most people, like he was aware enough to say, hey, I think this is a red flag that literally the CEO, the woman is in this women in metaverse article, but you still reach out to the male founder, the CTO about this. Like they didn't even CC the woman. So, I mean, it's just like a a prevalent case of bias in the VC space where people just want to invest in people that they relate to and things that they have seen succeed previously. And so it kind of compounds into this, oh, but we haven't seen that many women succeed because you never invest into other women, right? And so I had I had just like in the past eight months just been looking at these different NFT projects and I was just buying women NFTs. That was just what I was buying. I didn't really care that whether it made money or not. But over the long period of time, especially recently, these projects have just all exploded. And it really showed me that even though like these women, even during the low periods and NFTs are very speculative. So they go up, they go down. And so most of the projects just die when it goes down because they're there to make money. And they're not here for like the impact the long term. And so mm. the beautiful thing about the space though is that I don't need to be an investor to like put money in. I'm as a customer, I can put money in. And so I can put mon- money in things that I value. And so so anyway, after the eight months, that's why I decided that for Wow Pixies, it was going to be investing purely in women-led projects. Yeah. That's so cool. Do you recommend any of the NFTs that we should buy, the listeners should buy women led projects? Your top five yeah, no, no, no. NFTs. Well, first, you should buy Wow Pixies. Buy other projects. That's a given. That's fine. The one that I was talking about, World of Women, when I bought it, it was 0.5 ETH, which is around, it was already how much? Is, $1,500 which is a lot of money already. But now the floor, like the lowest you can buy into it is already at 10 to 11 ETH. So that's like $40,000 like minimum. Wow. So it's not very realistic for people to buy into that now. But same with Boss Beauties. For the longest time, it was just stuck at 0.2 or less. And people were oh, I don't know where it's going to go. I was like, look at the team. Literally, she was the first NFT project to be featured on the New York Stock Exchange Art Hall. Their partnerships with Marvel, partnerships with the UN. I was like, well, my true company 
like the fact that this this founding team can make such big impact like they're gonna explode in the future and it recently just like went up to three floor i'm sure it's gonna grow even more but like these it's a lagging factor because also the reality is that not that many women i think less than 20 percent are in in the nft space so the more women that can come in and you know participate it means that the more these projects will succeed because people tend to buy things that they relate to, right? Like the, they kind of identify with. Yeah, it's a statement. Yeah. Yeah. Also recommend Curious Addies as a curious point. So that, the story I was just telling you about was for a project called Curious Addies and they're basically octopuses that, this sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> Anyway, they're like <laughs> cute octopuses. But the whole project about onboarding more people with educational resources into Web3. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy to do a quick explanation of what an NFT is. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. That would be so helpful. So, yeah, an NFT, simply put, is basically just a unique token on the blockchain. So literally, it can be anything. It's basically... In the future, it's just going to be like a website. You know how a web page can literally be anything? It's just however you want to make it. It's like that, but with ownership attached. So an example is that because it's a, a token, it's basically something that is verifiable that is yours. And when it's transported to somebody else, you can see that transaction. And not only that, you can encode with a smart contract. Basically, every time you sell it, you can get X amount of royalties. So this really impacts how creators, and it's basically like a new business model because imagine like a company, like a luxury brand, like Hermes or Chanel, right? Mm-hmm. Right now they hate it when people sell it on the secondary market. The only way they can make money is if I, as Hermes, sell you a bag, right? Mm-hmm. But you can't control how money flows after you've given it to your customer they want to sell it to somebody else that has nothing to do with you anymore thing with nfts is that for example what can happen is that in order to buy an omez authentic omez bag you you buy the bag with the nft as an authenticator it kind of replaces the paper authentication card which can be easily duplicated right so then when i'm selling it to you I take the money. But then when you decide that you want to resell that Hermes back to somebody else, because of that token, you have to, to show that it's real, you have to sell that token to that person. And so I automatically, as the company, will get 10% royalty for every single, not it can be any number, but let's say 10% royalty for every single transaction that ever happens. So imagine that just unlocks a totally completely ludicrous amount of money flow that happens that you couldn't control before and you couldn't capture before. So that's just one example of what you can do. But mm-hmm. it basically also decentralizes all of the, like the creators don't have to be reliant on platforms anymore. They can create their own platform so that your customers also become, and your fans can become your investors. They have a more active participation than if they were just consumers like watching your content, for example. 
right? And so for us, there's another layer because we're also a DAO. A, a WowPix is a DAO. And a DAO is basically yeah. like a decentralized autonomous organization. It's almost like a co-op. But basically what happens is that your Pixie, like your NFT acts as a vote. So we actually allocate 80% of our primary sales and 75% of our secondary sales into basically what we call a treasury, like a Pixie bank. And that money is controlled by the community. So we use that money to buy up other projects into the, the DAO. But your NFT, basically, if you have the more NFTs you have, in like the more pixies you have, the more votes you have. So they act as a vote into the community. So you have the power to change the direction of where this project goes or where this money is spent. So anyway, that's like just a quick two-minute intro. <laughs> but <laughs> hope that makes a little bit of sense. But yeah. Thanks so much. I think for someone like me who is quite unfamiliar about this space, I think it was really helpful. A lot of times when you read about NFTs, there's a lot of technical lingo that you come across. So that was a super helpful introduction for someone like me with no, um, not much of an understanding of popularities. Hearing your story, I think there's so much to unpack. There's so much of lessons and insights, not just for our listeners, but I think for Helen and myself as well. Like you said, you know how you've been so values-driven in terms of the opportunities that you've pursued. And what stood out for me a lot was how you also created your opportunities. So even if, you know, things didn't turn out or pan out the way you expected them to, and even in bleak circumstances, you still managed to make something out of it and you came out stronger. And I think that's really um, inspirational and motivating for us as well. So it was really um, super amazing to hear you um, share about that. So I think just picking up on one point that you shared and kind of going a bit deeper into your experiences, I think something that you I guess a lot of people might face when dealing with side projects and side hustles and passion projects is how do I keep up with the demands of you know keeping a pace with this project and potentially juggling a full-time job as well. And you mentioned that you took a step back from one of your ventures because you were experiencing burnout. And I think over the course of this pandemic, this this whole topic about mental wellness, well-being, prioritizing mental health has really come at the forefront. So for you personally, with all these amazing ventures that you have done and juggling so many things together, how did you actually prioritize your self-care and your mental well-being? And what are some tips that you maybe share with some of our listeners who might be experiencing similar situations where they might want to pursue or are currently pursuing a side project while juggling a full-time job, family commitments, things like that. So how, how can you make it work without driving yourself to the point of burnout? If I had to go back and tell me something that I learned that I didn't realize when I was like 22 was that I don't actually have to do everything myself. And I think I learned this from like reading The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, which was actually there's a lot of things that you don't need to do. And even though right now I'm in a very, obviously like I just started Wow Pixies, it's one month in. But even so, I often have to think about how do I, rather than me doing it myself, how do I engage my community and empower them to do like these different things? So like design, I don't need to do the design myself. I will ask someone in the community, hey, anyone want to do this design? This is roughly what I'm thinking of. And someone will just step up and, and do it. 
And so they also, because they also want you to succeed, but I think it's the same for if you're just starting a project or a side hustle, is that how many of these actions are actually only you can do and only you like have the knowledge or the skills to do. And what of those things is completely unnecessary. So actually my boyfriend and I hired a virtual assistant in Vietnam because there is location arbitrage, right? And if it isn't worth my hourly rate, then I will just outsource it. And you realize there's a lot of things that you can outsource. Literally, I was trying to sell my clothes on Carousel and that would have made me spend another five hours trying to take every single photo of my Carousel. I don't like to waste stuff. So I just have this virtual assistant where I would say, hey, I have this whole bag of clothes. I'm going to put it downstairs in my lobby. Can you just get someone to get rid of it for me? And I just want to see money in my bank account. That's it. I don't want to see the process or how you're going to make it happen, but you can make it happen. And in the end, the and then she would give me three options. I would pick one. That's it. I don't have to think about it. I pay the thing, which was like maybe $3 an item. So as long as that person sells my clothes for more than $3, like it's fine. It's I would have made everything back. So then I would have saved another five hours or 10 hours. Who knows how many hours I would have by selling my stuff on Carousel. And I just think that a lot of times there's all of these small decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis that really distract you from the core things that you need to be doing. And if I just got rid of all of those things, then I wouldn't be burnt out at all. I would be perfectly fine doing both and having time. It just all depends like what, like what you value, right? So then if I don't value, like if I value convenience and I don't value like cooking or whatever, then why don't you just hire someone? to have stuff delivered to you or like find someone to do X, Y, Z. And it goes the same for like your side hustles too. What I realized, for example, when I was doing the traveling sketchbook and when I had 80% of it done was that I was doing the hand drawings, but I would go on Fiverr and I would ask someone, hey, could you trace my stuff for me on Procreate? Because I was spending like literally five hours trying to trace on Procreate. And if you calculate my hourly rate, that's like thousands of dollars. But she only charges 10 to $20. It's like totally worth it. And so I would just pay her 10 $20 an hour. And she would just trace everything for me. And then I'm, wow, it's done. I, don't, I didn't, I have zero accomplished, <laughs> even though I didn't do any of the work. <laughs> Is this what a manager feels? But yeah. Um, <laughs> I was wow like the power of delegation is just so you just have to let go of whatever control that you think you have and I think a lot of founders will feel this like you have so much perfectionism you want everything to go your way you want to control everything but you just gotta let it go let other people do the things that are not as important as the stuff that you need to get done So even though it's great to say you can balance your life and like have (laughs) meditate and all these things, but unless you get rid of all that other stuff that you have to do, but you don't want to do, and it's like really wasting your time, how are you going to find any time to do all of those other things that can help you with your well-being? I think it's interesting because that idea of letting go of that sense of perfectionism and control is actually something that applies even if you're not juggling a side hustle or passion project. I think even if you're 
focusing on your full-time job, I think these perfectionist tendencies still comes up. So I think what you've shared actually is advice that kind of straddles across the board. So that was that was really um, immensely helpful. So thanks for that. And I guess on the flip side of managing, but at the same time, there's all these conversations about how side projects and I guess side hustles or passion projects rather, you need to have this kind of creative outlet to help you decompress, especially if maybe your full-time job or your career is not kind of aligned with your values, but you're not ready to give that up yet until, you know, that side hustle picks up, that passion project starts gaining momentum. Why is it important for us to have that creative outlet outside of our, our day jobs? I mean, ideally, you can enjoy your work so you don't feel so crappy, but <laughs> in this kind of society, we tie people's identity to where they work. And I think that's not a great thing to tie someone's identity to because you as a person is not your job. Like as much as I love my job, I'm not my job. The ability to find out who you are as a person and how you can utilize different strengths is really necessary for our own humanity, just like to stay sane on what is our purpose, like everything that you do. You want it to have some sort of meaning at the end of the day, even if that's meaningful to yourself and it may not matter to anybody else, right? Like work is not everything. People need to have a personality and a life outside of kind of like a desk job. I guess, interestingly, at the same time, you have some people who are, you know, kind of struggling to find out what their passion is. People tend to identify themselves with the work they do. So that's on one end of the spectrum. Mm. And then on the other hand, you have those who are juggling like a million different things at once. I guess these are people with portfolio careers or who have a hundred different side, side hustles and passion projects. So in your case, when you are kind of juggling these different commitments and projects, how did you decide, okay, I'm going to focus on this as a priority, kind of prioritizing certain projects to start and then maybe putting a few projects on the back burner to kind of look into later. So yeah. for those of us who might be having too many things going on at once and trying to find that focus point, how do you do it and what would your advice be? Yeah, I think it's like a kind of expanding phase and also like a contracting phase. And the expanding phase happens when you have nothing to do. So what you really want to do at that point in time is to experiment. And to find out what you, because unless you try a lot of different things, you're not going to know whether you like it or not. And so I think that experimental phase is super important, um, especially if you're the type of person who doesn't know what maybe like what your passion is, because you just haven't found it yet. And you don't really know like what you, what you do. That's an important time to just try as many things as possible. And I think that once you get to the phase where I did, where I was, oh shit, like I have a, a bit too many things to do, which is then narrowing it down. And for me, wow, PCs was because before I was just like experimenting. I don't know if I was fully fulfilled in making a coloring book or doing the omakase experience. Like it, it didn't, it was really great experimenting for me, but I wasn't sure, is this the thing that I really love doing. And what I really love doing is building things from the ground up. And I love that kind of community business element as well as creative and having all of those components. So for me, Wow Pixies, I was, okay, wow, I can actually, I can wake up really early, do this, do my stripe work, go after work, still like do some of it, 
And I didn't feel, oh, this is such a chore. Oh, I have to finish this and this and this. So it was a no-brainer for me that I needed to focus because I obviously, like, I already don't have enough time. And so those are, like, the two things that I now focus on. And so I don't really think about what other things I need to pursue because I, I literally don't have the bandwidth for that. So, yeah. So, yeah, I think there's some, there's a wealth of advice there as well, how to juggle different things, maintaining your focus. Perhaps for some of our listeners who might be facing a bit of inertia on starting on a side project. So they have something they're very passionate about, but there's still that little bit of hesitancy that's keeping them from actually getting started. What would your advice be to these listeners? How I kind of see it, like how I relate this back to my artwork is that Something that taught me on developing an entrepreneurial skill was actually art from a young age. And you might be, how is this even remotely connected? And it's because the style that I do is these fine liner. So I use a pen. I don't use pencil. I don't use a razor. And I kind of start anywhere on the piece of paper. I don't have a formula. And I create these kind of elaborate structural drawings of different cities and stuff. You can have a look later what I mean. But it really taught me from a young age that the practice of kind of putting that pen to paper is just, is learned. It's like a, a muscle. And the problem with the current education system is that it values perfectionism. It, it really doesn't reward failure. And so the problem is that metaphorically speaking, Everyone who wants to start something but doesn't dare to start their their piece of paper forever remains blank, right? And so the skill that I have, and I think that if you're entrepreneurial and you want to practice that, is by putting that pen to paper and literally just starting anywhere. And so along this journey, you're going to face a lot of problems. And this literally every single time, I want to rip out that page because I made a mistake. I did a little bobble and I you know, get rid of it, but I don't want to start all over again. So then I just kind of like draw around it. By the end of the piece, you can barely tell at all. And it actually becomes like a beautiful pile, a beautiful journey of your artwork. And so to me, that's just the process of starting something is that you just need to start somewhere. And none of my previous ventures or at all have ever been planned out just kind of went, whoop, here it is. I guess I'll just start now. <laughs> I guess I'll just do this next step. And let's just figure out, do I need a lawyer? Do I need to set up this business? Do I need to do this thing? And then if problems come up, how do you work around those problems? So there's no ever like good time, good, perfect structure, perfect method. I think the hardest thing is just starting. and. Um, that's where most people stop at, that blank piece of paper. It just never begins. So you can have all the ideas you want, but unless you put those ideas to paper, it will never be a reality, right? Yeah. So what I'm really hearing is the bias to action, right? You, we, we always have so many thoughts in our head. Oh, this idea could work out. That idea could work out. But you never know until you really try. And I think for a lot of us also, it's like the fear of, oh, what if I fail? Or what if I don't know what the next step is? And then that puts us into not starting something. 
So, I mean, if you could crystallize all these years of your experiences and your entrepreneurial um, ventures, what are the top three advice that you would give to listeners who just need that little push for themselves to get started? I guess the first thing is that I always think about how can I start something with nothing? And I think that is the most create that limit is the most creative boundary for you to start something because a lot of people use that as an excuse to be, oh, I need to have $50,000. I need to get VC money. Or I need to, you know, get this co-founder. Or I need to do this before I can start. But actually, how can you actually start something with nothing? And I've always started something with nothing. Actually, that leads my second advice. How can you make someone pay you first <laughs> to solve yeah, their top-notch skills? Top-notch pitching skills. The, the thing is that no matter how much you pitch to someone, if it's not a problem that they need solving, then they're not going to pay you anything. And so the mistake that I see is that people will be like, oh, do this survey to ask my friends. Would you buy this from me? It's why don't you just pay for it and see if they're like, oh, actually, maybe I won't buy it. Then you know that it's not really that urgent and people don't really care that much and they're just doing it as a favor to you as a friend, right? So are they willing to pay you before you even start? So then once they pay me, I can figure out anything, right? Like if you, I'll make anything out of once you've like given me money. And then I'll, I'll figure it out. And I think that people don't think in that kind of order. They just kind of think, oh, I need to make a business plan. Then I need to get VC money. Then I'm going to use other people's money. And maybe this doesn't even work because I got, got no customers. And so you see half of Silicon Valley businesses generate no income. And I'm what? <laughs> <laughs> and I think the third one, what would my third advice be? I think the third one is just have a really supportive group around you. I never started anything that was solely just by myself. I always had friends around me who would help me or I would just like hire them or I, I would try to find a co-founder. I would try to find it. It's a very, very lonely journey and so and it's really tough. So it's much easier to give up when you're doing it by yourself. So it's better to find people around you who, or like uh, a co-founding team, or like people who can do something with you. So you keep each other accountable as you're doing, going along this journey. Wow, Lily, that was a really remarkable and inspiring journey. Thank you once again for your candid sharing and valuable insights. Here are our three takeaways from today's episode. Number one, don't hesitate Put your pen to paper and just get started. Number two, your values will be a guiding compass in your journey. Don't lose sight of them. Number three, avoid running the risk of burnout when you're creating or pursuing opportunities. Let go of your perfectionist tendencies and don't be afraid to delegate. Number four, our bonus learning tip is that sometimes you just got to roll with the punches and see where that leads you to. You never know what opportunities might be waiting around the corner. 
For more updates, be sure to follow us on our social media pages. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to our series available on all major podcast channels. We love hearing from you. So do reach out to us for any feedback, comments and suggestions on guest speakers and topics that you'd like to see at ywlchats at gmail.com. Finally, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram for the latest updates and sneak peeks of future episodes of YWLC Chats. 